I will never write a single line which I have not first felt in my own heart. He'll teach you everything! Truer words were never spoken. All right. Language and writing were made available. I'm writing this down. This is good stuff. I'm John. This is John Helps You Write Better. So how about we go write better? Does that sound okay? Does that work for you? All right, let's do it. Today, I want to answer a really straightforward question. How do you know how scenes should go in what order? No matter the scenes, no matter the book, how do you know that the order you're putting them in is the right order for them? This is a pretty typical question and a pretty normal question to ask. It's worth asking. And the answer isn't always as simple as, well, this just makes sense and it goes here. There's some actual technique you can learn. There's some there's some structure to it. So to do that, we're going to talk about the three different kinds of associations scenes have with one another. They're not really coming in an order of importance. They're just three ways we do things. The first is called sequential scene progression. That means we go from one to two to three. They move in a sequence. That sequence is sometimes the passage of time. So if we have a scene in the morning, then we have a scene in the afternoon, then we have a scene in the evening. That is our sequence. We've chronologically sequenced our scenes. But sometimes those scenes are just three things the character did, like in a montage. They put on their shoes, they brushed their teeth, they picked up the phone. There's always some relationship that we can sequence, whether that's the passage of time, whether it's three things the character did, whether it was three different phone calls. There's always going to be some kind of relationship around which we can sequence. This doesn't mean sequencing is sort of like the best choice, but it's a very common choice because most of the time people, when they lay out scenes, they think about it in a linear timeline fashion. Now, you can interrupt the flow of that time all you want because you're telling the story as long as you have this relationship to fall back on. It's, you know... The simpler that relationship, meaning the more direct and clear it is, the easier it's going to be for the reader to pick up on the sequence. And maybe this is more of a thing for a visual medium like film or television. But the idea that we can present some kind of relationship between events and that relationship should be, in theory, enough to stitch and hold those three things together, one after the other after the other, is a reasonable technique, and especially if you're assuming it's passing time, morning, afternoon, evening, then this works, and it's totally fine. No matter what those events are, whether they're disjointed from one another or disconnected in some way or, or totally random, passage of time is a perfectly good sequence for the movement of story from one page to the next, one scene to the next, one chapter to the next, or whatever. But it's not the only way we do things. So let's talk about the second way we can attach scenes to one another, which is called consequentialism, which is the idea that the events of one scene produce material or produce an element or produce a question, something that the next scene has to deal with. So for instance, if we have a scene where we are arguing with someone, 
right? The consequence of that argument is heightened emotions, right? We're angry, we're frustrated, we're sad, we're something. That emotional state, those emotions we have, whatever they might be, we need to deal with. So maybe if our one scene is an argument, our second scene is one of us storming off to another room to slam a door or yell or rant or rave or go outside and angrily smoke a cigarette or whatever. Like the consequence of the first scene is the second scene. Likewise, the consequence of the second scene is the third scene. So for instance, if we get into an argument and then one person angrily storms off and they slam the door behind them, what if they get locked out? So now they're locked out and they don't have a way back in the house and the phone is ringing. So now we've created some tension. Consequentialism is great when we want to build tension, when we want to raise stakes, when we want to say, because of this and because of this, this happens. Or as things progress, things get more fill in the blank with your emotion, more dangerous, more risky, more angry, more this, more that. And it shows a downside to the consequence. Like it can be positive or it can be negative, but there's always something to consider with that emotion so the penalty for getting angry is that sometimes you get locked out of your house maybe that's too direct but the penalty for getting angry is acting without thinking and the next thing you know you're locked out of your house we can do this positively as well again there's always something to consider if we have a a really big moment where we're celebrating a huge win and we don't pick up the phone when it rings because we're too busy celebrating we might miss the news that Uh, something bad has happened or that there's something else that requires our attention and now we have a consequence from something positive that is maybe itself something negative. Who knows? We've just missed the phone and creating that mystery, that unknown element propels story forward. But again, there is an underlying issue with setting things up via consequence and it requires that the first thing, whatever it is in our sequence, however long our sequence is, I've been mentioning three as a sequence, but you could do this for six, 10, 12, seven, two, five, any number of things. It requires that first thing to sort of start off a trend, kind of kickstart everything, which means generally you're going to have some emotion, some kind of momentum, some kind of catalyst in that scene to move things along. Something has to happen. A passive scene is harder to create consequence from because not really a lot happens. And not really a lot develops from it because it was just uh, two people talking, whatever, no big deal. Tomorrow we'll talk more in depth about active versus passive scene construction. But for now, let's let's stop and, and double check. We've talked about scene construction where things follow one another because there's a relationship or some kind of connection between them. And we've talked about scenes that have a direct impact on one another because one thing triggers another, triggers another, and so on. And those relationships are really visible. We can point to them, we can understand them. What happens though when we have scenes that need to be next to each other, but there isn't a clear relationship? Now again, this might be more visual or or multimedia than just prose, but what happens when we have scenes that don't go together, but the content, the material of the scenes needs to be known by the reader. So what if we have a scene where I'm talking into this microphone and then half a world away, somebody is vacuuming and then there's also uh, a description of rain in a forest 
on the other side of the planet. What, what do we do then? There is no clear relationship between those things. We have to make one. And that's artificial scene placement. We have to build some kind of thing, some kind of structure, some kind of architecture, some kind of reason for these things to be next to each other. Because we want to avoid the situation where the reader gets a sense of the author didn't know where to put these, so he just kind of dropped them in here. We don't want that laziness to even be an idea in the reader's head. We don't want to feel like, oh, I have these things and I like them, but I don't know what to do with them. We want to present something more polished. Now, artificial construction is not a good thing. It's not like a catch-all. Don't use it like a safety net. It is a tool with a very specific purpose, and that's when you want to transition out of things or transition into things, and you are making a very clear statement as to the fact that you are transitioning and the method by which you are transitioning. So if we have three disjointed scenes and you've fumbled it in some way, so if we have this scene where I'm talking into the microphone and let's say that closes a loop on the fact that I've got a recording day today with a pretty full docket of things to talk about. And then we get this scene of somebody vacuuming because, I don't know, we, we just have a scene where there's vacuuming because we need to know the secondary character is tidying up the house. And then this third scene of it's raining in Botswana or something. How do we build any kind of relationship there? We have to look outside those three scenes to something artificial like the idea that our story takes place in circumstances and situations where everybody's busy, there's always something happening, the whole world is available and alive. Without that kind of big picture to wrap up all these little containers, all these little elements, everything feels a little bit disjointed. In order to build that, in order to use that artificiality in our scene construction, we have to know the big picture. A lot of writers don't have a big picture. They just have a linear progression. People go here, they do this, they do this, they do this, and then we're done. Or they have a consequential impression of because of this event, then this thing happens and that thing happens. Because of all those things, this thing happens and then so on and so forth until we're all done. And It's not bad or wrong. It's not. Neither is better than the other. Those are two of the most common fundamental ways of expressing story ideas. They're both good. They're great. 90% of stories, 95% of stories are going to be told one of those two ways and everything's going to be delightful. But sometimes, sometimes it's useful to consider the idea that we have to go outside those two things in order to put a story together. And that's where artificiality comes in. Do I expect any of this to really matter in the long run? No. No. Because the answer to the question, why are these scenes in this order, should be answerable. And the answer, other than the author chose them this way, the answer should be because it is this presentation of ideas that better says what the writer is trying to communicate. Not just this event, then this event, then this event, but the breadth of the story is expressed this way. This is a story about people who are busy doing things, or the whole world is alive, or... This is a story about people having rough days or something. Finding your bigger message and expressing it in any number of scene constructions is way better for you sales-wise, marketing-wise, story, narrative, design-wise than just kind of slapdashing everything together and hoping it's, it makes sense just because you are overly attached to one scene and didn't want to develop anything else.
Scene construction is a simple thing that too often we make complicated. So give this some thought and I'll talk to you tomorrow.